Welcome to the Chiropractic United podcast series for May 17th, 2011. Title for this one, we're going to call it College Presidents That Are Subluxated. This podcast is brought to you by CBP Seminars. For more information on chiropractic biophysics, visit www.idealspine.com. CBP is running a Memorial Day sale for May 23rd through the 31st. Take 10% off when using the promo code MEMORIAL at checkout for CBP educational videos on DVD, the x-ray templates, the dental orthotics, posters, CDs, IQ, adjusting instrument, and educational brochures. Remember, use the word MEMORIAL upon checkout. Also brought to you by Elite Coaching. For more information on Dr. Fred DiDomenico and how his coaching methods can help your practice, go to www.elitecoachingllc.com. This podcast is also brought to you by PostureCo, developers of the X-ray digitization EMR known as PostureRay. For more information on how PostureRay can benefit and build your practice, browse to www.posturecode.com. Also, while there, check out our iPhone and iPad screening app known as PostureScreen Mobile. Just submitted to iTunes is the update for a comparison module. Soon you'll be able to do comparisons before and after adjustment or before and after care. So that way you can see how effective your treatment interventions are at correcting those subluxations. Better yet, it's the best educational tool. Imagine your CA doing a posture exam on a patient before you adjust them. Right afterwards, you adjust them. Before they get home, they have in their inbox, in their email, a chance to show their husband or their wife the changes that just occurred with their spine, which obviously leads to better health. So for more information, browse to postureco.com. Okay, uh, everybody, welcome to the May 17th podcast for Chiropractic United. Uh, this podcast is run by myself, Dr. Deed Harrison uh, from CBP Seminars, Dr. Fred Domenico from Elite Coaching, and Dr. Joe Ferentelli, CEO of Posture Co. Uh, this week, what we'd like to do is talk to you about uh, a hot topic that's uh, been part of the chiropractic profession's history since, since the inception of the profession, and it's uh, one of the heat, most heated, debatable concepts and terms going on today. And in fact, uh, many groups want to actually remove this particular entity and historical tenet of our profession, and it's known as the vertebral subluxation complex or simply subluxation. And what's, what spearheaded this particular podcast is a number of things, but uh, <clears throat> primarily a recent uh, YouTube video was posted about a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, from the FCLB, the Foundation uh, or the Federation of Chiropractic Licensing Boards. And at their meeting this year, Dr. James Winterstein from National uh, University of Health Sciences, which is a chiropractic college, even though you can't tell by the name of it, uh, was their, one of their keynote speakers. And in his address on YouTube, basically he's moving and arguing for the removal of subluxation from the chiropractic profession. He said there's really no need for it. It's holding us back. It's the reason we're not accepted into mainstream uh, medicine and mainstream public health. And in fact, he goes on to say that uh, the public perception of a real doctor is somebody who can prescribe drugs, 
So if chiropractors want to be real doctors, we have to move into the prescription drug realm and we have to remove uh, all tenets and principles in terms of vertebral subluxation. So this is uh, the topic we're going to address today with some science, some research, and some personal views and thoughts. So uh, welcome, everybody listening out there, and welcome, Dr. Uh, Joe and Dr. Fred. Well, thank you. Well, I have a personal view. Apparently, he wasn't hugged as a child. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't given much love. Yeah, I, I might tend to agree with that. You know, it's just ironic. You know, you know, we have a lot of listeners out there that obviously know how subluxation-based we are. But, you know, it's... <clears throat> I, I just can't imagine that – did this gentleman, did he practice for a long time? Do well, we have- he, he did practice, and you know what? If you read some of his works in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, he was actually a, a pretty decent straight chiropractor when you read some of the stuff that he, he wrote. And, you know, who knows what happened and what kind of political – Things have driven him and and, uh, financial gains. Who knows what it is, but something's driving this individual to put his personal agenda on the entire chiropractic profession. And there, you know, it's not just him. There's a few other groups and and organizations, but you know, they're not the the majority of the chiropractors out there. But they are some of the strong political uh, and uh, and research voices out there. Well, I saw the YouTube video, Dee, that you'd sent out, and I mean, he was passionate about it, which means something, he's got a big emotional hook that's driving him, and to turn coat, so to speak, and flip 180 degrees, something big emotionally is driving that guy, and uh, pockets would might be one of them, yeah. especially with his political position. Yeah, I tend to agree there's always financial things at stake, no you there? Sometimes it's hidden and sometimes it's not. And, and you know, that's not necessarily a negative thing, but it can be a negative thing when you're trying to, to dictate and change the scope of an entire profession. You know? Yeah. Like selling your soul, you mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that's our perspective on this issue for sure, you know? You know, so, Deed, you know, I know we're going to talk about subluxation. What's frustrating to me, obviously, you know, I came in with you in a chiropractic, you know, under the, the, uh, you know, under your dad, and I've only known science with it. And then I, I gained the philosophy and I always realized that, you know, the science proves the philosophy of chiropractic, you know, thanks to your dad and the research we've done. What's frustrating for us is that, you know, they say there's no proof of subluxation that, you know, x-ray is unreliable and invalid measure of subluxation. It's not reproducible. Can you hit some of these topics? Well, this is exactly what we're going to talk about. Um, you know, this, this a lot of this particular podcast it comes out of the, the PCCRP x-ray guidelines that we did in 2005 that were primarily endorsed and sponsored by the ICA. And other organizations got behind these x-ray guidelines, too. Uh, like the FSCO, the Federation of Straight Chiropractors, uh, also the the uh, WCA, uh, and then the CCP guidelines, and then many named techniques that utilize X-ray got behind uh, these particular guidelines to endorse them uh, once they were completed, and, and they were written from a chiropractic research, a chiropractic 
education, a, a chiropractic philosophy, and a clinician's point of view. And there was many authors on them. For example, there was about 26 panel members. Uh, so there's a wide range of, of researchers on these guidelines, as well as clinicians and educators. And the guidelines were accepted for inclusion in the National Guideline Clearinghouse a couple years ago. So now these guidelines, the PCCRP, are legalized. It's a legalized guideline to be used in the United States. The problem is everybody is still ignoring them. And I, I just I can't understand why the chiropractic profession, the average clinician out there, hasn't really united around these guidelines. I mean, it's really what we need. I, I think they just don't know, Dee. That's the problem. They just simply don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, you might be right. Um, you absolutely might be right. So I, I agree with that. And I think that's part of what we have to uh, uh, kind of go through here and share with people what it is that uh, the guidelines actually address. So, first, Well, can I say one thing too, Dee? Because I know there's a lot of people out there, and th this is the purpose of Chiropractic United in doing these podcasts, is because they got their head buried in the sand, waving the subluxation flag to their patients, but there's no involvement in anything else. And I have to admit, for years I did that, buried my head in the practice, didn't get involved politically. But that's what Chiropractic United is, is to bring this to people, you know, get these podcasts out there so the average guy out there that's spending time with his head in the sand gets to wake up and realize that, you know, that great thing that you're delivering to your patients is being threatened. Yeah. Yeah. That's that our purpose of doing this every week. That's correct. And, and you know, what I'd like to do, you're absolutely right, Fred. Uh, what I'd like to do is to start with a survey, and it's really one of the largest surveys, and it may be the largest survey ever done on how chiropractors think and practice regarding subluxation and, and the philosophy of practice. Now, this, this study is about eight to nine years old now, but it doesn't mean it's not still valid. So this, this survey was done by McDonald W. et al., and it came from Ohio Northern University in Atta, Ohio, 2003. And the title of the, the paper is How Chiropractors Think and Practice from the Institute for Social Research out of Ohio. And this survey is pretty eye-opening when you actually look at it. So here, here's what it found. So according to this survey in 2003, uh, what they found is for all practical purposes, there's really no debate on the vertebral subluxation complex in the profession. Nearly 90% of doctors surveyed wanted to retain the vertebral subluxation complex as a term. Similar, similarly, almost 90% do not want the adjustment just limited to the, the musculoskeletal conditions like back and neck pain. And then they go on to conclude from this survey, the profession as a whole presents a united front regarding the subluxation and the adjustment. Well, now, eight years later, you've got the, the FCLB and James Winterstein and these guys telling us we need to get rid of subluxation. It's holding us back. When, in fact, the majority of the profession, according to the data here, and, of course, maybe that's changed in eight years. I don't think so. It, the majority of the profession wants to keep the term. Okay. Yep. So that that's an impactful and very pow, powerful survey. 
It's what the average clinician out there wants, not what the average researcher wants and not what the average school wants. It's what the clinician that's the backbone of this profession wants. Okay, so let's start with that. The problem is this. There's there's so many definitions out there of what subluxation is and and what it could be that many times when we get we get so many uh, definitions and theories, it's very difficult to make sense of them all. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is any theory that's put out, it's got to be sound, based in science. It's got to be researched. You've got to have reliability of assessing for it. You've got to have validity of of uh, identifying this in a given patient population and that it causes dysfunctions, either biomechanical, neurological, or pain. So you've got to have some basic tenets when you have a subluxation. So what, what our group did in this PCCRP x-ray guideline is we, we approached the subluxation problem from a biomechanical perspective. We wanted to look at can we come up with legitimate, verifiable, reliable, and valid definitions of unique spine displacements. And if we can, what are they? What are they called? And they've, they've got to be ev- true, what we call evidence-based categories of subluxation. Now, a lot of this built on CBP technique. And at first, a lot of people looked at that and go, oh, well, this is just CBP technique until they realized what we did. It's not CBP. It's biomechanics of the spine. It just so happens to be that CBP technique is highly involved in biomechanical analysis of, of the spine. So we, we built on a lot of things my dad did in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and then we added to it and reviewed the literature. And we, we tried to remain consistent with contemporary sciences as well as past information and philosophy in the chiropractic profession. So those were all important. You have to be consistent with the history of our profession. You can't just invent something new and change the whole direction of the profession. You can't do that. And that's really what uh, Winterstein and, and the FCLB are trying to do. They're trying to change the entire face of the profession by removing a term that's ingrained in all our books, all our papers, all our paradigms, and you just can't do that. So any, anyway, I'm, I digress here, but um, we, we came up with six categories of biomechanical displacements that were unique types of displacements for the spine. And these six categories, you can choose to call them subluxations, which we as chiropractors like to do, or you can just call them spine displacement. To me, it's one in the same. It's a a legitimate type category of spine displacement, and chiropractors choose to call them subluxations. So what I'd like to do is go through these six categories and discuss some information that's relevant when we hit each one. And and uh, Dr. Joe and Dr. Fred, feel free to interject at any time because I'm going to do a lot of talking. All right. Go right for Sounds it. good. Okay. So six biomechanical spine categories. Let me just list them for you first. Category one, segmental subluxation. Category two, postural displacements and consequent spine displacements that are coupled with the postural displacements. So we have altered posture of the head, rib cage, and pelvis, and the spine displacement patterns that go along with that. Number three, snap through buckling. 
Snap through buckling applies to the sagittal plane curves. Number four, Euler buckling. And typically what we mean in this one is traumatically induced or slowly progressive deformity in certain regions of the spine, not exactly like scoliosis. Euler buckling can also have relevance to scoliosis, but when, when we talk about category number four, we mean more of an impact or deformity progressive progression model uh, under load. So people that don't know, put it in simple terms, those are like more compressive injuries. Yes, and I'll, I'll, I'll thanks, Fred, and I'll go through the... Uh, uh, the the general science and and proper education of, of these terms for the average listener out there when we hit them. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. People need to know what that is. Um, so Euler buckling or an overload type of event, compression or uh, or some kind of shear load, etc. Uh, then category five, true scoliosis, like adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, would be a, a prime example. And then category six, uh, true segmental instability, either static or dynamic. Okay, so there's our six categories. You know, the important thing is in the PCCRP guideline, chapter five reviews these, but we started with an idealized and average-based spinal alignment. So you first had to have an idealized and an average-based alignment for the spine. So we had to have in place. Well, the good news is CBP researchers and other spine researchers, we've established in place for the sagittal plane curves. We have idealized models and average-based models. And then in, in all spine research and in all chiropractic techniques, it's pretty much implied that the spine from the side is, or from the front or the back is a vertical column. So we've got a column that's straight from the back or from the front, and then we've got a, a structure from the side that has three curves. Okay, so we we started with that. There's our in-place model, and now there's these six categories of out-of-place. Okay, so type one, segmental subluxation. Segmental subluxation is a functional spinal unit looking at, like, let's say, C4 to C5 or skull to atlas. That functional spinal unit can displace in six degrees of freedom, 12 simple motions. A degree of freedom is the number of axes it can rotate around added to the number of axes it can translate along. So we have three axes because we're three-dimensional, X, Y, and Z, and we can rotate around each one of those. And we can translate along each one of those. So we get six degrees of freedom, three plus three. And then you have in each motion, you can go in a forward or backwards direction or a left and a right. So we, we have positive and negative directions for mo motion. So each rotational axis, you can go positive or negative rotation on that axis. So if I have three rotational axes, I can do positive and negative. That's two, two different types of movement on the axis for rotation. So two times three is six. So I get six rotations, and the same thing applies for translations. I get six translations. So that's where we get 12 simple motions. And the 12 simple motions are left turning, right turning, left bending, right bending, forward bending, backwards bending. That's six. 
And then the translations are left and right, up and down, forward and back. That's six. So we got 12 simple motions. Six are rotations, six are translations. And vertebra can do this. Now, the thing is, a functional spinal unit is not the same as a whole spine. So we had to look at functional spinal unit models and then whole spine models and then live subject models and see can uh, can a vertebra really displace relative to the vertebra below in a rotation or translation? And lo and behold, in the literature, there's a bunch of information on that, okay? And the, the main idea with this type 1 is that the spine is displacing one vertebra relative to the one below, but it's displacing inside of its normal range of motion. So it's not true instability. It's considered to go into its allowable motion, but it's stuck there. Okay? So this is category number one. A classic example of this, the validity of this, comes from a nice study, for example, on the nasium image, looking at the skull relative to the atlas. There was a great study that came out in JMPT in 1980. It's just nobody really talks about this. What they did is they took nasium images of 10 patients with chronic headaches, and they matched them and compared them to 13 asymptomatic controls. And then they looked at the nasium radiograph, looking at the skull alignment relative to C1. So the nasium is an AP view of the skull looking at atlas laterality or atlas lateral flexion underneath the skull. And what we find out is the range of motion for atlas lateral flexion underneath the skull is three to five degrees each side. So the range of motion, the allowable displacement is three to five degrees. So if we take a nasium x-ray and I see that displacement, skull to atlas, within the range of motion, within three to five degrees, and that skull is bent to one side, it's stuck there, we're going to call that a segmental subluxation. And what this paper in, in GMPT in 1980 found was that if you compare the patients with headaches to the controls, there's a statistically significant difference in the magnitude of the, the atlas lateral flexion angle underneath the skull, such that the patients were actually near end range of motion, 3.1 degrees, and the control subjects averaged 2 degrees. Okay? So this is a very nice validity paper that supports the idea that not only do these segmental subluxations occur, skull atlas, but you can also identify that they're greater in magnitude in people that have a chronic condition than in a control subject. Very important. So let, let well, me I think get, it's also important. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. No, I was just going to say, so let me get this straight. So we have our first sign that x-rays might correlate to something um, that, that people at National don't uh, agree with. That's correct, Okay. All right. I'm and, just starting to see that their president might be subluxated there. I'm just, okay, I'm getting it now. He's probably got a seven-degree lateral flexion, which kind of relates to my, what I was going to say, Deed, what you also did with that range, you get beyond end range motion, beyond five degrees, which is really the extreme end. If people actually measure that, then you know when you're dealing with with instability. Now you have a totally different way you would manage that case. Because now you got to do strengthening and, and other things. So, and, then, and those are the people, you know, we just came back from Kansas City at the upper cervical seminar and you reviewed this. 
you know, those are people that are going to be very sick. And it's not just a matter of an adjustment. It's creating stability up there and looking at the forces coming under that atlas and on skull position as to when you have that instability, man, everything above and below has got to direct forces in there normally. And that's why curve correction becomes so important because those people that are, you know, that James Winterstein's probably got an eight degree lateral flexion. Somebody dropped on his head when he was a kid and he's so subluxated his opinion changed. I wonder if he got got in a car accident between when he was principled and when he wasn't. Yeah, something's going on there for things to have changed that that drastically, you know. And the thing is, too, you're right, Fred. This category subluxation number one, segmental subluxation within the range of motion, is very close to our category number six of true instability. And you, you, you have to know the limits of motion before you identify the instability. Yeah, and you know what's funny about this, that to be accepted in a medical profession, that really burns me up, man, because, you know, as, as you and Fred know, I, I have no problem being accepted by my medical community. I mean, I have the top neurosurgeons, neuroradiologists, everybody working with me on my team, and, you know, they, they expect everybody does what, what we do, and they're shocked, and they find it odd when there's chiropractors that don't take x-rays. You know, and it's just mind boggling, like to the, the neuroradiologist, the medical radiologist that came to one of our seminars, he was blown away, Deed, that, you know, that people don't take x-rays on them and an orthopedist will just routinely take x-rays constantly on a person to, to measure the progress of something. And we have people, you know, out of, you know, national and some of the powers that be that want to limit x-ray utilization, which is just baffling to, to everybody that I've ever worked with. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, just for the listeners out there at the annual this year in September in Phoenix, the MD neuroradiologist that Dr. Joe's referring to is going to be speaking for a couple hours at our Friday session. And he's going to give a radiology perspective on on imaging and and spine injuries and working with chiropractors. And and, uh, his name is Dr. Chinton Desai. And he just flat out said, I cannot believe your profession wants to argue with the validity of using spine imaging. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a, that's a neuroradiologist's perspective. And he's seen all the time, not to digress too much, because uh, this is a whole topic in itself, but here's a guy that's imaging and seeing, uh, you know, ALR and accessory ligament damage on MRI. And, you know, and it's just frightening that we have chiropractors that don't even want to image that area. But I could talk forever on that. Let's go ahead and go on. Well, let me just say one thing on the whole philosophy, again, of why there is a Chiropractic United and and an elite and CBP working together is because you got medical doctors that know more about chiropractic than chiropractors. And frankly, it's dang embarrassing and especially embarrassing because there is a vehicle. Yep. CBP just taught this in Kansas City. There's a vehicle where every chiropractor can know this. Yet medicine, we dog on medicine, and they know chiropractic better than some chiropractors, at least the ones that are open to it. Now, that's going to piss some people off. But in reality, you got this guy that's going to speak that he can't believe chiropractors don't x-ray or they don't know what he knows. And we're supposed to be the specialists. Yep. There is the information there. You can get it. You know, there's a research disc. It's our responsibility to fix the spine. If we don't know how to fix the spine, who the heck else is going to know it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I challenge, that's why we do this. I'm challenging chiropractors. It's out there. It's in our profession. Go to a seminar. That's right. Or, you know, join Chiropractic United at uh, our website, which is where you can gain access to this information from the comfort of your home or watching it now on your iPad anywhere you are. And you don't pay for the seminar and travel experience. You just pay a yearly fee and, and you're in. Yep. So that's a great point, Fred. And, and you know, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to some way, way to bring it back. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Nice way to bring that back. Well, you know, I'd rather have them come to the seminar cause I make more money that way. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, the, uh, the point that Joe brought up with ALR ligament damage and, and such, I bet that if we were to do a study looking at the nasium image and atlas laterality, my hypothesis is that that would correlate the nasium image displacement would correlate to ALR ligament injury that you'd see on MRI. And that might be something, a very important study we can pursue with some of the imaging centers that uh, we have access to, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's a ton. The biggest thing that we need, obviously, and before we digress into a four hour podcast is that, you know, we just need, we just need help financially with anybody that's interested in seeing research progress you know, we have a nonprofit group that, you know, if it's not our nonprofit, at least somebody should donate to other nonprofits that actually give back to chiropractic. And, you know, part of our agenda is we will be doing MRI studies, um, you know, in, in the future, in the near, near future, no, but um, uh, and correlating it to uh, our chiropractic principles. Yeah, that's right. You know, if, if there happens to be somebody that's research savvy out there listening I went through the nasium and I went through the validity, but I skipped the reliability and I purposely left it to last. And on this particular topic, the nasium x-ray image is one of the most studied top or images out there in the profession for reliability of the measurements assessed. Okay. So for example, a paper came out in 1987 by Jackson et al, where they looked at 30 nasium films with six examiners. Reliability for the uh, practitioners was found to be very good across the practitioner and within the practitioner. They found a standard error of measurement for the six examiners on the 30 films. So inter-examiner, which may be more important than intra, was found to be 0.41 degrees. That's less than one half of a degree for the upper angle, that Skold Atlas, less than a half a degree was the standard error measurement. Yeah, but, Point- the, the, but James Winterstein will overlook that as, you know, I, I, they don't know, I, I don't know how, and w- w- where was that study published, by the way? This, this one, Jackson et al., was published in, jeez, uh, I forgot to pull it up. I believe it wasn't JMPT. It was uh, like a, a topics in clinical chiropractic yeah, but uh, but some you know some of these most important reliability studies, hmm, weren't they published in JMPT? Many of them were. There's oh, one okay. by that was in JMPT that in fact we did, my dad and colleagues did with with Barry Jackson, and Jackson was a statistician. Uh, and you know when you look at these standard error measurements, we're talking about less than a degree, and in some cases less than half a degree. And yep. then for for the students out there. Or the novices out there, an article came out by Spencer in 1989 where they compared experienced examiners versus students on the nasium. And they found atlas laterality, the upper angle on the nasium, 
was found to have an inter-examiner error of 0.33 degrees. And they found experienced doctors compared to the students did not affect the error margin. Yeah. So even an untrained novice, so to speak, can can do this accurately. Yeah, my, my point being is that what who put out JMPT, dude? It's national. Oh, okay. So even they ignore <laughs> even their own journal. Okay, my point well taken, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yes, nice job. Yeah, all right, changed, just making sure. They've changed dramatically in, in their types of publications over the, the last – several years. And some say it's a good thing. Some say it's, it's not a good thing. I'll, I'll let the, the listener decide, but you know, they don't really accept case studies anymore. And it, it's, it, it, it's moving in, in a different direction. Uh, it's still got good quality chiropractic information in there, but it's got a lot of PT in there now too, you know, uh, which is, you know, hence the name of the title, I guess, of the journal JMPT, but it's not just a chiropractic journal anymore. Yeah. So, Anyway, the other part of this would be reliability of positioning. So it's not just reliability of the measurements. It's can we take an x-ray in a repeatable manner on the same subject over and over again? And if we can, then we can compare before and after treatment interventions on the measurements. And if we cannot, then you may not be able to compare the pretreatment to the post-treatment radiograph. Now, this is a topic that's highly debated in, in the chiropractic sciences, and it blows me away. We, we identified in Section uh, 9 of the PCCRP over 50 articles that looked at the repeatability of X-ray positioning when taking an X-ray. And what, what these studies find without question is that it's repeatable. For example, on the nasium, since we're talking about the nasium, and it's not the only view to have found this, a study by Rochester and Owens in the Chiropractic Research Journal in 1996 looked at 20 AP nasium x-rays. They looked at the validity of the positioning, and they showed that there would only be a 0.2 degree artifact error from the, the average position of the head that was off-center. So they were able to position the head for a nasium as a true sagittal bisected image within 0.6 degrees of head rotation left and right. And so nice. you want to talk about repeatability and, and validity of taking that view? Extremely, extremely accurate. Also, another paper came out in the JVSR in uh, 2000 by Jackson where they looked at AP nasiums in 38 subjects. They took two sets of x-rays within four hours. So, yeah, they, they x-rayed them pre and four hours later without an adjustment. Oh, must they, have caused cancer. Oh yeah, they must have, must have caused cancer. Now probably all 38 of those people seven years later are dead, right? Yeah. More than likely they're actually doing better. Yeah. But it, it, anyway, they, they found that the, the error for the upper angle was only uh, – uh, the error was much less than one degree. It says much less than one degree. It doesn't report the actual uh, value, but it reports ICCs for reliability of positioning, and ICCs are intra and inter uh, class correlation coefficients. Uh, they found an ICC of 0.94 to 0.98, which is extremely accurate. That's considered excellent reliability. So x-ray positioning is reliable. X-ray line drawing is reliable. 
and the view itself has validity. That's a, a segmental subluxation and an instability at the segmental level. Pretty I cool. Want, I wonder if national nice. teach. Do you? I wonder if there's any national people out there that. I wonder if they teach the the nasium at national. I know obviously at life we learned it. All the lifes, and I, I know the Palmers learn it. No, I don't. I don't think they're teaching that. Anymore. Yeah, I lost you, D. Well, there you go. You know, I, I think that it's conflicting with everything that they're now moving towards. So, if you teach a technique that relies on X-rays to analyze a patient and to direct care, then that's conflicting with everything that you're saying. So, there's no way that upper cervical techniques are taught at national. Um, the, the other thing is, and we need to do a, a one podcast on this particular issue that and we can't do it tonight, but I want to tell the readers or the listeners what's going on. I just got an email this week from the UK, which is where I'm going tomorrow morning. I'm doing a conference in London this weekend, but their political bodies over there that are in control of the profession are trying to rewrite the chiropractic practice laws and acts right now. It's, it's an open document that is being uh, critiqued and commented on by the profession over there. But one of the su- subsections says exactly this. The chiropractor shall not, shall not use a technique that requires the utilization of x-rays hmm. to assess a patient. <laughs> yeah, hmm. so let's throw away everything that uh, the Palmers did. You know, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. X-ray is not important, you know. And, of course, by doing that, if they write that into their guidelines, all the research and all the techniques that actually care about subluxations, they're trying to write us out of uh, the whole program of chiropractic. Yeah, they, they can't beat us with science and information. So what they're doing is they're beating us with political agenda, which is complete horrific crap. Yeah. I mean – and, you know, you guys know what I want to say, but, you know, this is where politics supersedes science. Yep. Somebody's personal agenda is dictating the direction of a profession. I, you you can't tell a doctor how they can and cannot assess a patient. That is completely unethical and borderlines on the ridiculous. Yeah, you know, and I would like to – I wonder if anybody's ever tried, find, you know, following the money trail and the connections. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I bet there's a little connection between the groups over here and the groups over there. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to invite some of the U.K. Uh, practitioners and, and – uh, and members over there of their of their uh, political parties to go on Chiropractic United and try to uh, inform our, our listeners of what's happening over there. But man, chiropractic chiropractic's at a crossroads everywhere. Can you imagine that a document coming out that may make it illegal to practice a technique which utilizes routine X-rays to assess a patient? Which means that well, no longer would Gonstead be taught in any schools, which is pretty much mainstream. And then all the upper cervical techniques, no more Pedibon, no more CBP, no more clear, all that is gone. Yeah. Well, and what's totally insane, like you said, Deed, and it's, it's borderline, you said borderline ridiculous, it is insane that we're in an era where there's the most research that validates what we're doing. I mean, in the whole history of the profession, we're in the best era that supports exactly what we're doing. And it's not even all chiropractic studies. I mean, it's medicine. 
supporting us these days. I mean, in the 70s, you know, we went through that whole issue with medicine trying to slam chiropractic. And now medical, those studies support what we're doing. That's and right. now we're eating ourselves. Like, what a switch that is in 40 years. That's right. It, it's crazy. And like the research articles I always try to throw out at the end of these podcasts, like uh, one that I did or two that I did last week, were exactly like that. It's biomechanical experiments validating subluxation, loss of the sagittal plane curves as an important entity creating altered dynamics and dysdegeneration. And this is, they're trying to say that that's unethical to x-ray somebody to identify that? Yeah. Great. Crazy. Well, okay, guys, that's great. Let's keep going. Let's take uh, number two, and we won't spend this much time on each number, but I, I do want to spend some time on number two here, uh, type two subluxation. So we covered type one and type six, segmental subluxations, either inside the range of motion or instability past the range of motion. So we got two out of six. Now we're on type two, which is posture and spine displacements. So this is what CBP, 50% of our technique was, is founded on. And my dad, as we all know, in at least us three and some of the listeners out there, know that he was the pioneer in the history of biomechanics that categorized human posture as six rotations and six translations of the head, rib cage, and pelvis. And he did that in the early 1980s. He was the first person to do that. Now, some people were categorizing posture as the rotations, but nobody looked at the, the six degrees of freedom and 12 simple motions like my dad did. So he, he took the functional spinal unit model and applied it to the posture, and he gave us rotations and translations of the head relative to the thorax, the thorax relative to the pelvis, and the pelvis relative to the femur heads and the feet. Okay, And we got six rotations and six translations. Well... Part of the validity of looking at posture and spine displacements is knowing what the displacement should be. So, for example, on the AP radiograph, uh, our group, CBP researchers, did a, a very nice study looking at what are the coupling patterns associated with the, the movement of specific head postures. And the one we, we looked at was uh, lateral head translation, for example. We looked at what, what are the movements of the neck with a left and a right head translation. And we wrote this up in clinical biomechanics in the year 2000. We found that the lower neck and upper thoracics will bend to the side of head translation. And the mid and upper neck, so above about C4, C5, We've been to the opposite side of head translation, okay? So if you have a left head translation, your mid and upper neck bend to the right, and your lower neck and upper thoracics bend to the left. And we, we found that the, the primary coupled motion was lateral flexion, and we had very little spinous y-axis rotation. And then we came up with magnitudes of the movement so the range of motion of the posture, just like we have range of motion of a functional spinal unit, and then we looked at range of motion of the, uh, the individual segments in lateral bending and what kind of angles would be comprised in the midneck. And this is where you get validity. You can use the AP radiograph, the AP cervical radiograph, when you have somebody with a left and a right head translation, 
you want to take an AP cervical. So number one, you can see what is the neck doing relative to that posture? Are the coupling patterns within normal limits? And are the angles and magnitudes within normal limits? So for example, we found that the mid-neck angle with left and right head translation would be about 40 to 60% of the distance traveled. And the mid-neck angle would be the scoliotic angle in mid-neck. Because if you got two directions of lateral bending, the low neck bends one way and the upper neck bends the other way, you get a, you get a scoliotic type of neck angle. It's not true scoliosis, it's a postural scoliosis, but you get an angle there. So the angle at mid-neck would be about 40 to 60% of the distance. And so you can use that as a type of valid, validity and assessment for the person. If the person had 100% mid-neck angle compared to the distance, so if their distance of translation was 10 millimeters and they had a 10-degree mid-neck angle, you, you now have to be concerned for that person because you got to say to yourself, Self, the mid-neck is not supposed to bend that much with that magnitude of a head translation. And so then you got to problem solve and think, do they have injuries? Do they have anomalies? Do they have extra postures? And you guys get the idea. So that's part of the inherent validity in terms of this coupled motion. Okay, so that's part one. Part two would be, you know, any radiographic view you take, there, there's things that you're looking at on that particular view. So, for example, a radiologist would say, you know, number one, you're going to count the vertebra, right? We want to see, do they have the normal number of vertebra? Number two, on the AP cervical, you want to visualize the, the joints of Lushka and, and see, do the, the uncinate joints, do they have normal shapes? Are they arthritic? Do we have, you know, sclerosis of those joints? Uh, we want to look at the spinous processes. We want to look for fractures, deformities, spina bifida at the spinal laminar junction. And then on the AP cervical, you're also looking at some of the thoracic vertebrae and ribs, and you can see the clavicles, you can see the, the lung apices, and sometimes you can even see the soft tissue deviations, the trachea and, and such, and you get an idea, do they have thyroid problems? You, you guys get the idea, right? So there's, there's things that you're looking for on an X-ray in addition to looking at just the alignment, right? Right. Okay, and so these are things that oftentimes the we call them the dark side. My dad would always call them the dark side, the, the James Winterstein. They're like, you don't need an X-ray. Don't take an X-ray of a patient. Well, yeah, we need an X-ray. We want to see are there, there are reasons for this person having issues or are there other re issues that we need to identify that are you know, pathological that maybe require you know, outside intervention. Right. Well, and that's the whole thing, you know, we're primary care providers, you know, not only do we, do we need to study the biomechanics, but it's rule out all the other causes. I mean, that makes no sense just as a doctor that we wouldn't take x-rays. That's right. Yeah, that's what our, the neuroradiologist that came to our seminar, he was just blown away that they would even put forth this notion that someone, a chiropractor would you know, wish not to take x-rays and try and adjust or, quote, manipulate the spine, you know, it's just mind-boggling. And it, for an MD to understand why we need x-rays, it's embarrassing, like Fred said, for a chiropractor, you know, to be on that side. And, you know, you always wonder, you know, what's the agenda? Do they work for the insurance companies? There's some, there is an agenda. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's pushing something. And, and you know, 
we're we're push, pushing our agenda too, but our agenda is let's let's allow people to do what we're trained to do. I mean, that's well, why we just be great doctors. How's that? Yeah, you know, do no harm. I believe we went through that when we graduated. Right, that's right. Okay, back to this: the uh, the positioning of the AP cervical, the reliability. Uh, our group, CBP researchers, and I think uh, Joe Joe Ferrantelli might have been an author on this particular paper, where we looked at a control group of 26 subjects, where we got pre and post AP cervical radiographs with no treatment in between uh, in 2004 in the Journal of Rehabilitation Research and Development. And what we found was there's no differences in the control group subjects' uh, AP radiographic measurements on the before uh, X-ray and the after X-ray. And the X-rays were taken about eight months apart. So even eight months later, you can get the same image of the neck in a control group with no treatment. And by the way, that study came out of my practice in Elko, Nevada in the early 2000s, and the x-rays were taken by different examiners. Yep. So two different examiners were able to take the x-ray in the same manner and get the same damn results. Yeah. You know, that, that should blow people away. And here's, you know, students in chiropractic radiology courses are being taught that x-ray positioning is not reliable. Yeah, indeed. You know, what paper was that in again? What, what journal? The Journal of Rehabilitation Research and, and Development. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that the the listeners out there realize that that's not a tabloid journal. No, it's not. It's a, it's a great journal. It's actually the Government Veterans Journal. And yep. uh, I've been invited to be, uh, review for that journal occasionally, off and on, for, um, throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that the measurements, we've studied the reliability of the measurements on the AP cervical, just like we did on the AP nasium. In uh, 2002, uh, we did in GMPT, we did 30 films with three examiners, and we found out that the uh, the angle measurements had uh, ICCs of 0.88, which are in the excellent range, and we, we found errors uh, for different angles of anywhere, depends on the angles that we were looking at, uh, uh, 0.8 degrees to 3 degrees for the angles, and then 1 millimeter for the distances. Mm-hmm. That's what we found. Okay, so we've got reliability of measurement. We've got reliability of positioning. We've got validity of the measurement based on just the coupling patterns. But then I want to give the audience out there some research on validity of the measurements in populations of people with injuries and without injury. This is where we identify x-ray has validity to discriminate between a normal and an abnormal. The first one, believe it or not, came out in 1960. That's 1960 in the journal Radiology by Zatskin, Z-A-T-Z-K-I-N. And it was uh, volume 75, page 577. He compared 25 men and 25 women involved in a motor vehicle collision to 35 control subjects, 25 men and 10 women, and they were matched for age. The control subjects had no history of trauma and no pain. And what he found was the AP cervical view in the uh, motor vehicle collision group showed a measurable scoliosis, that's like our mid-neck angle, in 46% of the injury subjects. So that's 23 out of 50 subjects, okay? 46% of them compared to only 9% in the control group. Okay, now that's an odds difference of five times. 
So if you did an odds ratio, you'd have five times the difference of measurable AP scoliosis next in the AP view in the injured group compared to the non-injured group. Yep. Huh. That's looking it's, – it's really – it breaks down to 5.1 if you do the math. Five times – 5.1 times more frequent in the injured subjects compared to the non-injured subjects. Now, that's a validity study. That shows you that the measurement is useful in identifying an injured person. The other thing is my group, me and Paul, actually myself and Dr. Paul Oakley, uh, did. A, he's a CBP uh, chiropractor in Canada, and I know you guys know Paul. Yep. Uh, Paul has a master's degree in the field of biomechanics, specifically kinesiology, and he came out and worked with me, and he did his intern preceptor program through me when he was at Palmer in Davenport. And so his last uh, quarter or semester, he came out and worked with me, and he had to do a project. And it was supposed to be a case report, and I was like, hell no. There's no way I'm letting Paul do a simple case report because the guy's a pain in the ass. He's bugging me too much, too many questions. He's one of those can I, can I, can I, can I guys, you know, can I do this? So I figured I'm going to make Paul do a study that's going to take him at least a month to do, right? So – what we did is we did this project, and he finished it early, by the way. He worked his butt off and got, got the study done in two weeks. Uh, nice. We did a study looking at the, pre- the prevalence of lateral head postures in a patient population in my office. And we wanted to, to see, is there a correlation between the, the head posture magnitude, any pain uh, magnitude, and any demographic mag- uh, variables? And this was actually presented and published in the uh, Journal of Chiropractic Education in 2004. What we did is we looked at uh, two years of patients in my office, and it was a retrospective study. We looked at AP cervical radiographs in adults, and adults were above 18 years of age. Uh, The subjects had to have on the travel card a head translation that I identified and an X-ray translation of C2 relative to the upper thoracics of at least uh, five millimeters. And then they had to have head and neck complaints. We looked at age, sex, height, weight, and pain intensity, and duration of the symptoms. Uh, And we we looked at the radiographic variables of angle measurements and distances. So we had 176 patients met the inclusion criteria uh, we, we looked at a total of 335 patients, but only 53% of them met the inclusion criteria. And then of the 176, only 146 of them uh, met the uh, inclusion criteria for neck complaints. So we were left with 146 patients over two years. 67 were men, 79 were females. And we found that males had bigger head translations than females. Uh, 12.4 millimeters compared to 10 millimeters. And that makes sense because men are taller and translations tend to be a linear variable. However, uh, also men had greater angles, which doesn't necessarily make sense. They had a one degree uh, difference in their angle, five degree mid-neck angle compared to a four degree mid-neck angle, men versus women. Uh, Some of the interesting findings were that what we found were that the, the greater the head translation distance, so the larger the head posture, the greater the mid-neck angle. Well, that should make sense because of the coupling patterns there, right? So the, the bigger the translation, the bigger the angle. But then we found out that patient age, 
So how old you were and pain duration, how long you had the pain, were correlated. Now, this is something that really pisses me off is when somebody says pain goes away on its own and it gets better with time. And that's absolutely not true. Many, many studies have identified that pain does not go away on its own. And this particular retrospective project found that that we found a correlation P uh, P less than 0.005 with age and pain duration. And then the other thing is the longer you had pain, not only the older you were, but the greater your head translation distance was. So we found a statistical correlation between pain duration and head translation distance. And then we also found a correlation between the the mid-neck angle and the neck disability index score. So the, the size of your scoliotic angle, angle at mid-neck correlated to your neck disability index. So this, this is a very important validity study on the AP cervical radiograph published in the Journal of Chiropractic Education. And it's like you, you look at it and you go, how can you say that X-ray measurements don't correlate to a person's complaints when you got studies like this out there? Well, I want to add one thing, too, on a philosophical perspective that relates to that is one thing that we get tired of, and I know you guys are obviously extremely passionate about um, fixing people. You know, when you look at the principle of chiropractic and you look at what you just said, Deed, I mean, basically, the longer it's there, the worse it's going to get, the faster it collapses, the sicker they are. And then you get these patients that come in, I love chiropractic, I've been there 30 years, I go once a month no matter what. And then you look at their x-rays, they're degenerated, they got wicked angles, their health doesn't look any different than the cross-section of the population. Now, is that what the impression that we want to create in chiropractic? No. I mean, and the research shows, if you don't fix it, it gets worse. Not only, and pain is the least of the concern. All the pain means is their, their body is collapsing faster now than it was 10 years ago, which means their spinal cords are under more stress. They're getting sicker, and before it was pain, and now it's a disease and pain. So it's like, when do we take responsibility, man? When, where does the buck stop? Yep. Because the studies show it's going to get worse unless you fix it. Yep, you're absolutely right. That's absolutely right. We need to take responsibility. And it's not just about the clinician taking responsibility. We now need to fight for the right to be able to take responsibility. Right, even before that. Yeah, so now we've, we've got two things, two big tasks to do, you know. We've got to improve ourselves as chiropractic clinicians and improve our business model and treatment models. And we've got to fight for our right as a chiropractor to be able to do this work. You know, absolutely. And the, I just want to do. I, I think I won't be able to get through all the uh, the different types of uh, subluxation, and that's fine, guys. I think we can do another podcast on the ones I missed, which uh, I think the readers or the listeners would would like that. I do want to throw out uh, just a couple more papers on this AP cervical issue, and I, I want to give perspective because I always like to be as as fair as I can. And we all know that everybody has biases, and I've got my own. But I try to be as fair as I can with with the presenting the, the the opposing view. Now, on the AP cervical, one study I could find came out in JMPT in 1998 by LIYK, and in this paper in 1998 JMPT, they found that 
AP cervicals x-rays were not able to discriminate between pain and non-pain subjects. The, the problem is people cite this paper, and I mean by people, I mean the dark side. They bring this up. Oh, well, there's no, there's no validity for the AP cervical, according to uh, Lee et al., JMPT 1998. But what they don't realize is the methods are extremely poor. You compare the methods to the methods of the previous paper, and you find out the methods are very bad. Example, here's what they did. AP cervical alignments on x-rays in 87 neck pain patients compared to 21 controls. Now, they didn't match the two groups of subjects, and they lumped in the neck pain group, they lumped acute neck pain one day duration hmm. with with chronic neck pain of four years duration. Yeah, they, that, <laughs> they threw them all together. Yeah, that's... And they, they didn't differentiate them out. And, you know, hell, as far as I know, one day acute neck pain is entirely different than chronic neck pain. Yeah. How, how It's amazing sometimes how papers like that get past the reviewers. Yeah. And, and the other thing is no measurements were actually performed. The only measurement was on the C1 to C2 joint space distance left and right. So no angles were, were measured. They just looked at... Um, the the distance between the dens and the lateral mass on each side, and that's highly subject to rotational positioning. And so it, it, that right itself is just a projection artifact. And if you're not extremely careful with the way you take this APOM, you're going to get a little bit of a artifact left and right. And it, it may it may be meaningless, but hey, if you look at the angles there, if you looked at C1 to C2, if you looked at C2 to C3, if you looked at global distances, maybe you find something. So they only looked at the distance between the dens and C1, C2 is the only thing that they looked at. Hmm. So th this is a, a problem paper. Yeah. Now, Deed, we're, if, if the listener is interested in the PCCRP, where can they get more information or where, where can they get a uh, copy of it? And by the way, is that tax deductible? I know I'm setting you up with this. Yeah, and it, it is tax deductible. It's 100% write-off donation to uh, CBP nonprofit. I was the chair on these guidelines, and so the ICA and I talked about it. Even though it's the ICA guidelines, we talked about it being run through CBP, so when it comes time to rewrite these guidelines, I can easily access the funds for the, through the donation because it takes a lot of time and effort ordering articles and then getting together at certain locations and reviewing papers, etc. So the ICA allows CBP nonprofit to distribute these guidelines, even though they're, they're, they're the ICA guidelines. And you can do you can get this online at idealspine.biz. We have a link for the PCCRP X-ray guidelines. And it's a $150 donation, and all the money is, uh, number one, tax deductible, like I said, but all the money goes back into the guideline development. Yeah, and I think this is the best uh, utilization for a doctor that's in practice now that if anybody ever questions the reason why you took x-rays, you know, if it's the board or if it's an IME, if it's a personal injury case and they said you should have taken those x-rays, you know, this is through the National Guideline Clearinghouse, and this is legal document to where it can defend you and actually prove why you're doing what you're doing. And let's have them try and counter it, you know? That's right. 
Okay, the last the last topic, the last study I want to do, and then we'll have closing remarks from you guys, and and feel free to say whatever because I've done most of the verboseness here. But uh, the the last part of validity is really the clinical outcome side of it. Always people say, well, you've got no evidence that using the X-ray improves the patient's outcomes. Well, that's not really true. We we have done some preliminary work, and so have other authors on this. For example, we did a non-randomized clinical control trial in 2004 in the Journal of Rehabilitation Research and Development in the August issue, where we looked at exercise, adjustments, and traction in the mirror image of head translations, and can we change a treatment group with head posture and chronic neck pain compared to a control group with head posture and chronic neck pain? And we were looking at left and right head translations. Mirror image simply meant we do the opposite. So if you have a right head translation, we come up with a way to adjust you on a drop table or using an instrument into left head translation. In this particular paper, we did the drop table. So it was head translation, mirror image adjustments on a drop table, and then freestanding range of motion exercises for the head translation in the mirror image. And then we did Berry translation traction, where we uh, pulled your head over and held it there uh, for up to 10 minutes in the mirror image. And what we found was in a treatment group compared to the control group, we found no change in the subjects in the control group in their pain or x-ray. So chronic neck pain stayed chronic neck pain over the, the follow-up period. However, we found statistically significant improvements in the treatment group's pain scores and lateral translation x-ray measurements and their angle measurements on mid-neck. Okay? The interesting thing we found, although it was a small difference, it was st statistically significant, we found subjects with greater pain improvement had the greatest angle change compared to subjects that had less pain improvement. So right there, that shows preliminary validity for correction or reduction of these AP cervical angles and distances in a non-randomized clinical control trial. Okay, And that's a very important piece of the puzzle. That's what everybody wants. Oh, we lost you there. Is, is there, what'd you say? I, I just said we lost you there for a second. Okay, so this is a very important piece to the puzzle by showing that is there a correlation between correction of the subluxation displacement on the x-ray and improvements in a patient's condition. And, and that's what we've identified. So, yes, there's more work that needs to be done there, but to say that there's no evidence, James Winterstein and everybody else out there, I mean, that, that's just absolutely wrong. It's not true. It's like that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. And, and that's all I have to say about that. Well, there you go. You know, I think on a, just, again, getting back to looking at correcting the spine, you know, you went through those three categories. And, you know, there's people out there, and I was one of them, in the, at least in the beginning, waving that segmental subluxation flag. And, and you talk about this, Deed, in the seminars where there's subluxated regions and then there's individual vertebrae within maybe a, a segmental subluxation within a subluxated region. 
And uh, then it's really determined, is it within the normal range of motion or is it just flat out uh, uh, soft tissue instability or some type of instability? But in reality, if you want to fix them, you got to fix the region. And then we also know from all the coupling patterns that, you know, hey, a lot of times it doesn't even start there. So, I mean, everybody has a full spine problem. And you guys know from the postural coupling patterns, regardless of what they come in with, I mean, it's like an anterior thoracic translation causes a spondylolisthesis. You know, so you got to correct the whole posture and correct all the regions to even correct the segments. So I think what it really is, is when are we going to start really telling the truth about a subluxated spine? Yep. Yep. Because it's, you know, very rarely is it just segmental. Mm -hmm. It's segmental because there's a bigger problem. Yep. That's that's absolutely true. And and just so we cover all the bases here, this particular podcast is obviously Deed's opinion, Fred's opinion, and Joe's opinion. So we're expressing our views on this particular matter, and it, it it's not necessarily the views of the ICA or any other major organizations. These are three individual chiropractic views on this particular matter. Yeah, all fired up about something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, our views are right, though. Um, so. <laughs> I just I needed to say that for, um, for the ICA's benefit and behalf, and because they had no idea we're doing this particular podcast, and and since we're going through the PCCRP and we're naming some certain individuals and and colleges, uh, we don't want them to catch any heat from this because they had no part in it. No, they didn't, you know, but... Well, and one thing... Sorry. No, I was just going to say, they didn't have any part in it. You know, this is the opinion of us, you know, but I, I really think that we do represent a majority of the profession with subluxation. I mean, anybody that goes on Facebook nowadays knows that we're retaking the profession. I mean, we really are. Everybody that's that wants to, to show what chiropractic is, you know, with a, a capital T-I-C, you know... We're taking this back, and, you know, social media like Facebook, no longer are people going to get away with this garbage, you know? And your dad warned us a long time ago that he said that we had to watch the profession because chiropractic was going to change if we didn't step up and do something. That's why we did the, the – helped with the ICA best practice, why we did the PCCRP. But, you know, with thank God for social media like Twitter and social media, especially Facebook, with all the, the subluxation-based guys, we're finally banding together – and you know what? We're going to take this profession back to where it was, which is scientific subluxation-based chiropractic that helps people beyond that of neck and back pain. Well, and I think another important thing is, uh, and this is my opinion, you know, we just made that new patient workshop that uh, has this some of this research in there. And, and we created that so doctors can go out there and show this stuff. And it's pretty hard for a patient to say no. And Joe, you didn't hear this. I told this to Deed earlier. Jenny, my administrative assistant, was shipping off a bunch of these PowerPoints, and she was at the UPS place. And uh, there she had about three people behind her in line, and she had all the regaining youth and vitality with the logos and all the professional stuff there. And she was... Uh, you know, it was taking a while, and she said, you know, I'll let you guys go. This is going to take a while. And they stopped, and they said, no, I'd actually like to ask you some questions. And she had an audience of three people because of the graphics and because of the title. 
and she started talking to him about spinal correction. One uh, woman gave her chiropractor's card to her and asked her to see if he's into CBP, and two other people wanted a referral, and she gave a little mini workshop in about eight minutes just because they saw the graphics and the title, and in that is a PowerPoint that has this research, not these exact studies, but where you can give this in your class and, and show people that chiropractic is scientific-based. Yep. Yeah. And so it's call uh, either Ideal Spine or Elite Coaching. You go to EliteCoachingLLC.com, get my number. Uh, you can call, um, go to my email, Dr. Fred, D-R-F-R-E-D-1, DrFred1 at MSN.com if you're interested. And uh, it's a phenomenal workshop. Yeah, and you know what, Fred, that, that nails it. That just hits it on the head. Back to the, the beginning with uh, James Winterstein's uh, YouTube video, the public doesn't want a new drug, Huey Lewis in the news. Yep. Nice. Uh, they don't want that. They want something different. They know drugs are not the answer. They want something that's going to help them permanently, number one, get them out of pain and over their disability, but make it to where it, they don't have to rely on drugs again. They want to get better. They want to change their life and lifestyle. They want correction. They want weight loss. They want health. They don't want a new drug, and that's the workshop. And I, I, I think that that is the new public perception. Well, and that's why it's called Regaining Your Youth and Vitality. It's not called a spinal care class. You know, it has the graphics and a title that all people do is look at the title and the graphics and they want it. And then it's backed with CBP's research. Yep. yep. That's right. It's, 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 and this is my opinion. It's the best workshop in the profession. And I think when you guys get it, you'll see. Yeah. Joe, yours is in the mail. Yep. Awesome. Okay, guys, that's uh, a wrap for me since i got to get up at uh, 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, where, where are you going to be this weekend, dude? I'm going to be in London at uh, London Heathrow, just off the airport there, doing a, a pediatric seminar for the uh, United Chiropractic Association. And what do we have coming up in, what, two weeks? In two weeks is our Las Vegas Biomechanics Seminar at Caesars Palace, so Biomechanics of the Spine. And you're going to show Biomechanics of Rolling the Dice, too, after hours, correct? Yeah, a little crap. So I'll show the, the limp-wristed throwing style like Revenge of the Nerds with Lamar. Yeah, well, nice. <laughs> as long as you know you keep uh, scoring big, I'll be right there beside you, that's for sure. Of course, for all the money going back to CBP Nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nice. Our and personal that, money going into it, I should say. Fred, We're not gambling CBP nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. Fred will be at, at that seminar. Is that correct, Fred? Yes, we'll be at Biomechanics. And then the following weekend, uh, we have a boot camp, day one, day two, how to get people from pain into posture, organs, and wanting overall health and regaining the youth and vitality. We'll show you how to do that in Atlanta, June 10th through the 12th. Awesome. All right, guys. Uh, I had a great night with you guys. I hope the read or the listener. I always call them the readership because you've <laughs> written too many papers. That's why. Yeah, I know. The uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed this uh, week's podcast, and I hope that it's added to your level of, of certainty and passion for corrective chiropractic care. And again, check us out on the web at uh, www.chiropracticunited.com if you want to actually get trained in some of the systems and, and techniques that we're talking about. Wonderful. 
All right, Sounds guys. Sounds good. Thanks, you guys. Thanks All a right. lot. Have a safe trip over there, Deed. Safe trip, Deed. Thanks, guys. Good night. Good night. Take care. Carry the sword. Thanks. Yes.